Hello, friends, and welcome to the 100th episode of World Build With Us. My name is Rob Hilferty. I am here with the whole gang today. We've got one Mr. Daniel Quinn, one Mr. Christopher Prunty, and even the elusive Courtney Staples. Today's episode is going to be pretty chill, actually. So if you're here mostly for the hardcore world building, you might want to skip ahead in this episode because the first chunk of it is going to be answering questions from our patrons that we had over on Discord. Uh, That leads me into my shilling opportunity, which is, hey, we've got a Discord. We've got an email address where you can send us world building prompts where we build them live on air. Uh, You can email us over at worldbuildwithus at gmail.com. You can also follow us over on Twitter at Let's World Build, and you can give us money on Patreon, all that good stuff in the description. And if you want to join our Discord and ask us questions there, you can do so. Link for that also in the description. Let's fucking get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have our 100th episode of World Build with us. I can assure you that when we started this podcast roughly two years ago, I was... I was happy that I would get to episode 10 and now I'm at 10 times that we have roughly 50 to 70 hours of content on the internet. We've interviewed all sorts of interesting and cool people from game designers to authors to YouTube personalities. We've got a lot of stuff under our belt. It's been one hell of a journey and I am just so grateful for everyone who listens and everyone who uh, supports our community and supports the podcast. So yeah, that is where my spiel ends and I get to let everyone else talk. Uh, Everyone talk about the podcast in some way. Like I was not the kind of person that would have considered being on a podcast because I don't like public speaking or um, being seen by humans. Same, same. (laughs) Yeah, so I feel like this is a different experience for us. And, um, you know, hanging out with Chris and Rob has made that easier because they're cool people. Oh, oh, wow. Just leave them (laughs) together. It's a little heartfelt. The only only sentimentality you'll get out of me. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Daniel, obviously a late addition, and Courtney even later than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the real trick to running a podcast successfully, uh, and I'll, I'll say this in, in two things. One, uh, you have to have consistency. As soon as you let one episode go, I feel like, you, especially without notice or something like that, that is the death of the podcast. That's where most podcasts end is when they stop scheduling or they miss a week and then all of a sudden it's two weeks and then it's on unexpected hiatus And the one thing that I'm very, very proud of in this podcast is our ability to produce week after week of hot, hot content for you and um, not safe for work. Well, no, I think I don't think Mm -hmm. any of our episodes are actually safe for work because, man, we are foul mouth motherfuckers. But still, it's been a lot of fun to produce this amount of content with my friends. Also, uh, number two. Uh, number one with successful podcasting, uh, scheduling and like the logistical stuff is boring, but it's also the most vital part. Number two, and I bring this up because it's also very important, trick your friends into coming on podcasts and then snag them into staying as co-hosts for like (laughs) another 70 plus episodes, because that's how Daniel ended up. 
And I'm sure I can say the same thing once we get in, into another 50 episodes with Courtney around. So <laughs> we got mm-hmm. you, Courtney. It's too yes. Late. Damn it. <laughs> it's, exactly. You're all stuck with me now. So, uh, yeah. Um, does anyone else have anything to say uh, about the podcast, Chris? You're you're an OG an OG host like me. Um, I mean, it's without saying any anything more. It's been fun. I like where it's gone. I like the kind of uh, exercises and every now and then just kind of thinking about world building more than I guess I would have before, or at least in a more variance than I would have before. Instead mm-hmm. of like one mm-hmm. track of, I'm going to think about the apocalypse for three solid months <laughs> yeah well only three during the pandemic's actually pretty good chris yeah, it's I gotta impressive, say. Actually. like that's not bad at all it i didn't want escapism to become my real life <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough uh i I'll, I'll echo that sentiment as well i think that the podcast has really made me more creative and has like made me not just a better li- in terms of like my own creativity, but I feel like it's really improved my ability to w- to collaborate with other people. Like I think that the best thing that I've gotten out of doing this podcast is my ability to like link ideas, like disparate ideas, to make something more cohesive. And I think that's a skill that's been like really strengthened just by the exercises that we do on a weekly basis for the podcast, like okay, Chris's idea makes no fucking sense in the world. How do we make it fit? You know, we're like, Daniel always fucking throws a curveball. I How can I expect and even subvert that expectation that I know is coming? You know, stuff like that. Uh, Courtney, you, you haven't been with us enough for you to have your own archetype of like what kind of dumb bullshit you're going to be throwing into the world mm-hmm. building process. But I look forward to actually, if anything, and this is just a Courtney thing in general, not like... Uh, or whatever, but it's like Courtney will always take the the concept and be like, "How can we make it darker than that already?" You know, like <laughs> that's that's the Courtney archetype of that's, world yeah. in general. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, but I've just, um yeah. I've really enjoyed, especially the uh, the random world building exercises that we've done, like the full jams where we don't come in with anything prepared and we just go for it. Um, mm. I do think that's really sort of expanded my my scope of world building as you had said before um i tend to veer towards like the more realistic types of stuff but getting more into like oh there's like actually satan in this world or um yeah there's robots who trap people inside of them that sort of stuff that's like oh that's not what i would normally go dark one i think that was that one Mm -hmm. was actually my fault although you went a step even further with it so i can blame you for that at least yeah that's fair yeah. <laughs> I think what's what's also important about this kind of podcast is the f- having a bunch of people together um trying to get to a solution based on serendipity. So like given a premise and then kind of coming up with things as you go. I think in itself is like the representative of, of the creative process you go through when you're trying to solve a problem in mm-hmm. fantasy because mm-hmm. When you're making something in fantasy, you're not just spitballing and, and tying things together in any any old way, even though it is fantasy, because in speculative fiction, like there's an internal logic to things, right? So things make sense in the setting you put together and based on all the little building blocks you started to build up. So when one person says something, another person says something, you've got to start squaring that. And like oh, Rob yeah. was saying, it means like negotiating with everyone mm-hmm. to make that make sense. Yes. And so I, I feel like 
oftentimes people who don't understand speculative fiction or don't read a lot about it, they don't realize that there is a logic behind all of this. Like, even though the rules are not the ones we're familiar with, like, they there are rules and we're trying to yeah. make them make sense. We just have to make the rules up. That's the trick. Yeah. And and honestly, I think when it comes to good world building, the the thing that always make that I always pay attention to is what makes sense or does this idea make sense? And if it doesn't, how can I make it make sense? Because realistically, once you create an element that really takes people out of it entirely, uh, just just like it has to have its own internal logic within the world itself. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And you you can really come up with whatever you want, even if the logic is like loose at best, like that doesn't matter. What matters is, okay, in this world, this happens, how and why does it happen? And then if the answer just so happens to be Satan, or if it's like, you know, food is magical, those are the, those are the answers. And then you, okay, this is the element that you're dropping in. Oftentimes I think good world building comes down to implications that are sometimes left on the table or Mm -hmm. not really explored fully. Um, Yeah. So I think that we've said enough about our podcast and our, you know, world building experience that we can really move into the questions sent by our patrons over on discord. And again, got a link or got to plug that discord. Cause man, it's super cool. Um, Gluax has a couple of, you know, kind of uh, personal questions, which we're going to ask, which is how did the crew meet and what was your favorite tabletop or, or what was your first tabletop RPG played together? Uh, the, how did the crew meet one is actually, it's simple. It's like how every friend meets, but it's also a little bit more complicated. I think I met Courtney because of a mutual friend of ours. And then, uh, Chris, uh, I met Chris through Courtney and I met Mm -hmm. Daniel through another mutual friend of ours, if I can say that. And I think that's like the really basic level There's like a little bit more narrative to it than that, but I don't think that people need to know, you know, the dirty laundry aspect unless you guys are comfortable saying it. We're all members of a sex cult. Yeah, basically. Mm. God damn it, Chris. All right, fine. Fine. That's yeah. You want (laughs) to toss it out there. Uh, We meet, we, you know, that's actually um, why we started gaming together is that the (laughs) The sex cult met every other Thursday and we needed something to do in the, uh, you know, the off Thursdays. And so mm, it was convenient. Yeah, makes sense. yeah exactly. And mm-hmm. then mind you, this is not like some, oh, any Kmart employee can fucking come and join the sex cult. No, we had to <laughs> Kmart offer, employee. We had to offer headshots. <laughs> we had to offer headshots and we had to like fill out the survey. Oh, yeah, yeah. I feel like Kmart is like somehow worse than Walmart. Because it's just like Walmart, we know is the worst, right? Like just just uh, uh, metaphysically the worst, but somehow Kmart <laughs> is just bottom of the barrel sad. Uh, and I say this with my mother having worked at Kmart for decades. Have you uh, ever gone to a Kmart as it's going out of business? It's right. Just sad. Oh yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> No, like walking through those aisles and they're empty and barren. They're like, no one gives a it's, fuck. It's, it's one despair. of the most depressing things. Yeah, absolutely. Literal despair. 
Uh, I only mentioned Kmart because I'm literally staring at a copy of uh, Bonnie Joe Campbell's American Salvage, which is like <laughs> straight up Kmart realism. So Beautiful. Kmart, Kmart realism, that should be a fucking genre. It is a genre. Oh, Why do you man. think I fucking brought it up? Kmart realism. Yeah, Kmart realism is already a genre. It's it's mostly wow. focuses on like really poor people who would shop at Kmart. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's great. It's it's actually a really interesting literary genre that Oh I, wow, uh, it is actually a genre with a really, Wikipedia article. On it. No, nice. I'm not bullshitting it you. It has wow. a Wikipedia article. You fucks, I have an English degree. <laughs> I've got to have useless information somehow. I, I thought this was just a term that you coined. I, yeah. No. No. I mean this, <laughs> Wait a minute. Who published the Wikipedia article? <laughs> uh, we notice a Rob H. It's weird. <laughs> Updated 10 minutes ago. Strange. <laughs> I'm trying to make Kmart fiction happen. Uh, no, Kmart realism is an actual thing. Mm-hmm. And it's been a thing. It's, 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 a, it's a subgenre of literary fiction. Like I said, I have an English degree, you fucks. I deserved it. Anyway, um, the first tabletop RPG that we all played together, uh, Courtney and I played 3.5 D&D, like, oh God, probably 15, 20 years ago. Oh, now. wow. Yeah, we're old. Not 20. I think it was 15. It's probably closer to 15. Yeah, 15. Well, Hold on. 15 would have been... Don't do the sad math. Yeah, no, we, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yes, we should skip mm. that. <laughs> Don't yeah. do it. The sad math makes <laughs> you sad. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, Chris, Courtney, and I played 3.5 or Pathfinder together? I think Pathfinder. The first? Uh, yeah. I forget. No, I think we might have started with 3.5. Oh, boy. Maybe. Um, so I think that we basically we we started with D and D three point five, moved to Pathfinder, and then we all moved to a modified, heavily modified version of Pathfinder, which is where Daniel got brought in. Um, so that's kind of like the timeline of the friend group in terms of like who was involved. Um, but yeah, Daniel uh, Daniel's a latecomer, um, as we found out in the sex cult. Um, but, <laughs> oh my but yeah, those, I, I, we, I don't think that we've played like a D and D or a Pathfinder derivative as like a whole group since, oh God, couple, five, four, three years ago, three, four years ago now. I've, I've three, basic three, I think three. I want to yeah, say three. Yeah. I, I've basically, um, not moved on from my weird narrative story games right now we we literally just started a game last night which is a city of mist hack and we've played dungeon world and we've played all sorts of weirdo one shots as well uh we've played a uh cypher system game it's it's mostly me just trying to find out what system i like best and one that doesn't require a whole lot of mechanics and crunch because I mean, we came from 3.5 and Pathfinder, which are very crunchy systems. Mm -hmm. And while fun, like it gives you a lot of like power when you, you know, learn how to min max correctly. To me, I thought that there was a lot of narrative aspects missing in the game, which is why I've kind of transitioned away from that. And Daniel's also been working on his OSR plus system. Yes. Oh, that's right. We do have to plug the, well, actually Mm -hmm. we can't, (laughs) <laughs> plug it yet because it's not ready for public consumption. Coming but Daniel soon. has been working yeah. on a uh, a web. It, w- Daniel, why don't you explain it? Because I'm going to fuck it up. 
<laughs> well, I was going to say, like, um, it's funny because the first time I played anything adjacent to third edition, it's like Pathfinder, was when I, I started playing with you guys. Because before that, I hadn't played for at least, like, I don't know, eight years or ten years when I was in Florida. Because we used to play, like, second edition way back then. So, like, it was the, my first experience playing third was with you guys when we played Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you could consider Pathfinder basically third edition. It's three point seven five, yeah. Right, it's, right. It's very so, close. Yeah. So that was like an experience because I hadn't. I mean, granted, second edition had you know your character sheets are also seventeen pages long, but I was shocked <laughs> because I stupidly chose like a monk for my first character oh, in yeah. Pathfinder, <laughs> and I had to have a separate sheet just to understand the way the attacks work. <laughs> so talk yeah, about you, mechanics. <laughs> you had a flow chart. I remember yeah. like, you printed out like, okay, if I attack in this hit, then right. I go here. But if it doesn't, then it goes here right like you before your gunslinger or do you it was just before. always do that it was and then create characters i stupidly yeah. chose the gunslinger, but the reason why i said that is because like then rob um had played some we played some narrative like pbta based games which i didn't know that that's what that was at the time because i'd never mm-hmm. heard of that and so then i started to do my own research because i thought you know everyone has their own homebrew system but i wanted to have a system that was somewhere between pbta and old school like second edition sort of stuff so that's why I started working on my own. But mm. it's 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 great. It was great going from the super mechanical Pathfinder to something like well, we we tried Dungeon World, right? As one of the mm-hmm. ones we tried early mm-hmm. on to see you know what's the gray space between those two, and it's super fun. I feel like I I'd that. say that your system feels like a very heroic version of mm-hmm. an OSR thing because to me, yeah. right? Like when I think OSR, I think like hyper deadly yeah hyper deadly like, like, like <laughs> yeah. you're just gonna get like yeah. uh-huh. tossed through the meat grinder and your yours is like no we're gonna play like D D 5e but with like uh-huh. a 2d6 die mechanic you know like, exactly that's how yeah it, it's right it tries to marry like some of the pbda stylings with you know the old school what you're mm-hmm. used to seeing in an old school game mm-hmm. oh uh i i we can cut this if we don't want but we uh we recently have been playing uh, a one shot that turned into a three shot from um, <laughs> yeah. based on the battle trains uh, setting that we've done with like the crash landers where we're all mm-hmm. essentially press ganged into attacking a train, but by being like the electro Vikings and shit like that. Yeah. And uh, we just had a, a, the second session happen recently and oh man, that system <laughs> allows for some wild things to happen. Let me just put it that way. We'll send that one out eventually once we got it recorded. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, actually, we can probably send that out and have because we have recorded the sessions and everything, mm-hmm. but they're not edited and ready for public consumption. Yeah. But if you guys want to see that, please let us know. Send us a, a Discord message or an email or something like that if that's yeah. something that because it's already out. It's just or yeah. it's already done. It's a matter of. Actually. And I promise once OSR Plus is ready to be released, you guys will be the first that we'll send the link to. Because I want to make a lot of setting. I want to take a lot of the settings we made in the podcast and render them in the system so they're playable. Yes. And I think that the ease of use with that system is is quite nice. Uh, the only thing I'd probably argue for is you would want to have something that helps GMs a little bit more. But we can talk yeah, about Yeah, I want to write a book for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, plan. if you want a book, just fucking write it on the website, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, let's see. We've got another one from... Uh, oh, uh, Jay has a good one, actually. He wants to know, 
uh, just like we ask people during the rapid fire questions, what is your favorite character death that you've seen or played in the game? So uh, <laughs> I, I, go ahead and so, someone, someone take that one from me. I'll, I'll go later. Daniel, why don't you start us off? What's your favorite? <laughs> Daniel, what is your favorite player death that you've seen or played? Or that I've experienced? Yes. Um, trying to think back to, so like the GM that I played under when I was like a teenager, who is still today, to this day, is like a legendary GM in my mind. And I don't know if that's partly because of him being the first GM or, yeah, or nostalgia, mm. or if he actually was awesome. But anyway, um, I'm trying to remember. I think I played a murderous, um, well, she was, she was like a hyper feminist, murderous Harlequin sort of character. Um, it was so like evil Harley s- Quinn plus plus basically. Yeah. Harley Quinn or Harlequin? <laughs> Harlequin. So like the, the lyra pipes, you know, and oh, gesture. Gotcha. Um, and she, I, I remember there was like Skeletor was in this campaign somehow. And she <laughs> Makes was, sense. She was like in the position of a sorceress, and I think she had to do something to like have help the protagonist win, and it involved like her sacrificing herself. So that one was really fun, just from a narrative perspective, because mm-hmm. I had to choose to die in order to help the protagonist, who was another player, really defeat the big bad guy. It sounds to me when you throw in Skeletor, it sounds like you're not role playing at all, but like mashing action figures together. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty dope. That's, that's a cool one. Um, let, let me ask you this. Why does it stick out to you so much? Just because it was like, was that like the first time that you were like, oh shit, narrative stuff matters and I have control over my character? Yeah. I mean, I really liked, um, the first time being able to choose, you know, the character's destiny and for that to make a huge difference in the story. Cause I didn't have to do that, but I thought it made sense in the moment. And so it like really it was one of those moments when you when you do something in a role playing game and the whole table is like oh that's awesome that makes perfect sense and it has to happen that way because it makes sense for the narrative mm-hmm. uh courtney or chris i mine does not count fully as a death but <laughs> i thought they were dead Whoa, so I okay <laughs> feel like that should count hmm. uh, i even came prepared with a new character Go on. Uh, I so I was playing a completely legitimately good character, and okay, I I have to stop you immediately because uh... I'm already suspicious. <laughs> like, was this okay? This was, was Julian. This... Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, Julian is not a good character. Julian is like absolutely from not. his perspective, you're the evil. Oh my character. god! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so Julian is literally just like. He's basically the level of evil that is like pure. He's he's basically Christian Bale from American Psycho. He's Patrick Bateman, hundred percent. That would be your opinion. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but anyhow, I after fighting off a bunch of uh, what was it, insect lady and golden knights, and uh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. he he unjustly had been burdened with a curse that every time he harms a living being he himself would be harmed in increasing amounts and in defense of the other people selflessly he (laughs) uh, took down the knight 
and succumb to his wounds. And mm-hmm. I thought that the other people, quote unquote, good people, were going to kill him in his sleep. I actually totally forgot about that aspect of it, but there was a legitimate moment where they're they where they're all standing around your unconscious body thinking, <laughs> is this what, is this how we do it? Yeah. It's like he's finally like he can't defend himself. This is the weakest he may ever be. Mm-hmm. And, and because my guy was also a beast. I mean, uh, well, he was an alchemist who would turn himself into a literal beast. So, yeah. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was that was a good one. I, I remember that. And I, I remember I created Rebecca Day, the greatest yeah, character. Yeah, because you really thought ne- you were going to die. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. man, you rolled so well in those stats. I rolled like, three 18s, yeah. and it was in front of you. <laughs> yeah, it was it was an absurd stat line. It's like, Did well, you ever get to play that character? No, no. but it was what because uh, Rebecca Day was also his arch nemesis. Yes. <laughs> Yes, wow. exactly right. That would have been who was just a very nice lady who baked cookies for people at the <laughs> office, kind of thing. And because he's a literal and figurative monster, he's like, "I must kiss. She's awful, and I must kill her." <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of there was a lot of complicated feelings that Julian had for Rebecca, if I remember correctly. Um, but well, mm. yes, yeah, it got yeah, yeah, mm, mm. yeah. All right. and, but my favorite thing about that character was also the love of their cat. Yes. Yeah, that's the only thing that was like remotely redeemable. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Oh no. And and his ward who who mm. came about jo- Joffrey. Oh, mm. Yeah. Good old Joffrey. Uh he did take in a, a burnt a, a burnt and scarred uh orphan. body. Yes. Yeah, I mean person, boy. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, I, that, I played with that character. I remember that. You sure did. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I think that I'm totally not sure, a person. Yeah, totally a person. Like Chris and I were talking out at like during the middle of the campaign. There was a time jump that happened, and during that time jump, Chris just so happened to be like, "Hey, let's talk about stuff that happened." And uh, he was being an alchemist. He created a tumor familiar, which. <laughs> I was like, that should totally be like a ward or like a little character, a side character. And Joffrey became like an actual character later on. So yes. this like weird tumor child that Julian like created in a vat basically and gave a tragic backstory to later ended up being like a real character in, in our he, game. He actually did have a few moments in the original campaign because it was just he like... Did. Where it was just like, hey, could you pour some drinks for our guests? It was just like, why do you have a child? Yes. Yeah. I own an orphanage now. Don't oh, question yeah. it. And, and like everyone was immediately suspicious of this child, but not of it being a weird tumor homunculus. More of it just like, is he experimenting on you? Yeah. Is he like, <laughs> is there some vivisection going on every exactly. now and then? Yeah. No, they, they were like all Mr. terribly Julian concerned. is oh so kind to me. <laughs> Yeah, they were all terribly concerned for this child that wasn't even an actual child. It was actually really well done and funny. Uh, especially because Chris and I were like tittering to each other out of game. Like, oh, he's not even a person and we've got them all fooled. You know, like, dumb don't treat like him that. like a person. Yeah, because he's not. 
It's like everyone just assumed it was Chris's character being like a monster, but in fact, he was actually just a tumor. <laughs> I don't think I knew that, actually. You didn't? I don't think so. I thought so. we talked about that oh at some my point. God. I don't... Yeah, no, Joffrey yeah. was literally Julian's a... tumor. Yeah, he was a tumor homunculus that he wow. created, yeah. And we and, just and... so happened to give him sentience and he became a, a playable character later on. So remember... <laughs> and, and... And that's why Joffrey was terrified of Julian in the second yes. campaign, because he was just like, what if he wants to absorb me back into, <laughs> into yeah. his body? Yeah. Remember, don't let your dreams be dreams. Even tumors can become real boys at some point. So, you know, with enough alchemical magic. Do tumors stuff. dream of flesh sheep? Uh, the, no, no. Stop it. <laughs> uh, Courtney, why don't you tell us yes. about your favorite character death? I guess I kind of have two, but one isn't really a death. And I'll start with that one. Um, I guess it was death of a campaign. Um, that was the a campaign that you ran, Rob, where we were in this um, kind of like creepy horror wilderness setting. And um, it was just a very emotional campaign, emotionally draining. Um, and in kind of, I forget if it was the very last session or the one leading up to it my my character kind of stepped in and took a blow from an enemy that was meant for a character who may have been his daughter um and that wound ended up becoming horribly infected and basically the 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 final session ended with his leg being amputated poorly poorly and we hadn't even like meant to end the campaign there, but after that, it was like, "Yep, yeah, we're good. This is this is a good stopping point." <laughs> yeah, that was a very emotional campaign Extremely. overall. It was yeah. it was a, a very bleak setting, mm-hmm. and it was like uh, it was my first time really uh, DMing a horror like a horror campaign, and I was just like, it was just bleak thing after bleak thing after bleak thing. And I realized after the, after the fact that I'm like, man, they need some levity because otherwise yeah. everyone gets super depressed. That Although, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, that was like the last session of the campaign. I'm actually glad that we stopped it there. Oh, me too. Yeah. It, it was also, it was I'm like, good, good yeah, idea. you, you mm-hmm. can't, mm-hmm. I mean, it was like really tense roles of like, Courtney's character also just so happened to be the healer. Yeah. And so with the healer incapacitated, there's an entire party of people who are trying to stop them from bleeding to death from a failed or not a failed, but like a botched amputation of Mm. the limb. And it's like dice being rolled and like very intense. And it was it was very good. Yeah, I would literally play that setting again as different characters. Oh, yeah. I mean, that the the Stalwick campaign, I had it mapped out better than any other campaign that I've ever mapped out before. And also some of those beats, you, I mean, the way that you play it could change entirely depending on how you, like what you do and how it happens. It's, oh man, mm. there's, there's a ton of really good stuff <clears throat> in Stalwick that I really liked. On a much more light note, uh, this is also kind of a wilderness campaign that you Oh, you're Rob talking about Teak, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. yeah. So, oh. so Rob yeah. ran this, um, this wilderness, like kind of edge of wilderness exploration swamp <laughs> campaign. And obviously <laughs> the entire party decided to play like urban city folk with no survival skills at all. Um, because hey, that's what you do. My in, guy was a survivor. A- I told them, 
all right, everyone, this is basically a Wild West boom town, you know, but in the swamp. So get ready. And they're like, we're all urbane, you know, like we have, Aristocrats. We have no survival. Yeah, exactly. Like you're, you're pseudo aristocrats, like straight up city folk. Didn't mm-hmm. Tyler literally have a manservant? Yes, 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 he, yes, did. he did. And Sebastian, he was a godson. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Him. yeah. So, um, so very first session, we were, was it? Or yeah, I think it was first session. We were in a, a wagon. We had been kind of captured, and we were tied up, if I recall correctly. Yeah, you got drugged by some yeah. food. Yeah, and um. So we like kind of come to and the wagon actually crashes and um, breaks apart. And um, so we're all like tied up and we have to escape the broken wagon, which is actually sinking into this like muddy quicksand kind of stuff. And we're all these weak, urbane, aristocratic people. Um, And somehow all of us managed to roll super well and like pull ourselves out and survive Until. except except for poor poor teak um who we did in our in fairness we did actually try to save him a couple times but we just like couldn't so, so towards the strength stat was 12 yeah, yeah. Well, no, that, that wasn't the problem it was teak got knocked out because yeah. he was basically uh, he mouthed off to the guard who like headbutted him mm. or like like struck him with the butt of a crossbow. Yeah, and it just so happened that the two points of like non-lethal damage that he took were just enough after the impact of crashing into the swamp to like entirely knock him out. Yeah, and yep, so, so we, like, yeah, we 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 escaped and just kind of stood there and watched the wagon go down. Like, well, nothing we could have done. <laughs> What I actually really liked about that moment is that Tyler's character, like, had Teak on his shoulder, rolled mm-hmm. twice as this as this carriage is being sucked into the mud, and like rolled terribly. And then he says, "Fuck it, I'm dropping Teak," yep. and he drops him over the shoulder to be sucked into the swamp and dead forever. And at that moment, that's when he rolls a like nat twenty or something. Like that just immediately jumps out. Like it's just like, oh, guess he was weighing me down this entire time, you know? Oh man. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was that was also also this was like hour one of a three to four hour session. And so like I had mm-hmm. a character I had a player who's just sitting there like, well, I don't know what to do for the next three to four hours. Guess I'm just gonna sit here and do nothing. <laughs> Uh, it was very memorable, but also very unfortunate. So. Yes, extremely. I, I could have sworn from memory that Teak lived or was awake long enough to help boost someone up or to break their restraints. And instead of going like, okay, now break mine, someone was just like, fuck that, I'm out. <laughs> that sounds like something that's plausible. Because yeah, it does. As, as the carriage got further into the mud, it did start to constrict and like basically shards of wood started to fly and hit people so i wouldn't be surprised if that in fact happened to teak as well and that like he was mm. i'm gonna be the one good character and then immediately just fucking ate you know like ate it and that that actually set the tone of the campaign as well because it's like oh this is the character that's supposed to be the heart of the party and then that party and then that party member fucking dies so it's like yeah no you're done mm. <laughs> oh man uh yeah so uh the uh, I will say that the only time I've ever died as a character is during one of Chris's games. Oh God. Why do you, um, and I mean, it's, it's fine. I'm not going to bring that part up, Chris. Don't worry. 
Um, but it was, I actually really liked this character. I had a lot of really cool moments. It was a paladin and people thought that he was like suicidal because of the stuff that he was did, but he was actually just like, I was really trying to play lawful good and like send a message and be a beacon of good to the world. Um, and then eventually after some, uh, basically me ended up one V oneing, or at least that's kind of the situation that happened almost one V oneing, like the main bad guy. Uh, he just rolled a lucky crit and like just annihilated me. Um, the only thing is I, I always rem- remember that because, um, one, it's the only time I've ever died as a character and two, uh, I remember being really pissed about it forever um, because I was like, I didn't even get a fucking like death speech as I died, man. It was like, I think everyone around the table was so shocked that it happened that we were all like, oh, oh shit. And then it, like we kind of forgot about the fact that he died, you know, which was unfortunate. Uh, it was also crazy because it was a paladin with a constitution of 20, which means that like I had crazy stupid dumb amounts of hit points Mm. and the ability to like basically bring myself back from the dead uh but yeah it was just one of those moments that will stick with me uh because i was like yeah that's dope as fuck yeah those are all the deaths uh let's see (laughs) next uh oh uh cr rowinson asks us what are some common tropes in world building you like to see less of not counting stock fantasy races, so he cut me off at the pass there. Uh, what are some trends you're seeing in world building, and are there any really enjoy? Um, obviously, the one I think is extremely tired, and I won't read it if that's the premise, unless there's some twist, is the chosen one trope. Like, there's oh god, mm-hmm. is that still a thing? Even yeah. I mean, in YA, oh, it's totally, a yeah. frequent thing, but it's just uh, like I there's nothing new you can tell me about that unless you're doing something really unusual and subverting with the chosen one trope. I feel like even the chosen one of evil is a thing that's probably been done by now, right? Where it's like, you're the chosen one, but you're chosen to destroy the world. That type of thing. That's got to be a thing already, right? Any sort of like genetic exceptionalism is just not interesting to me. Yeah. No, I totally Mm -hmm. agree with that aspect of it for sure. Genetic exceptionalism? Well, that's what the chosen one usually is. Like, I'm either chosen by a god or I'm just, like, naturally a badass. Gifted at everything. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah. It's, it's like, 95% of shonen anime and, like, shonen manga is, like, even, even something like Naruto, right? Where it's, like, I'm going to outwork you. And it's, like, no, you're actually just blessed with a specific <laughs> bloodline. Better. There's, uh-huh. like, a weird, like, eugenics thing that happens with a lot of, like, manga and anime that i'm just like recognizing as an adult and being like that's really weird all of your powers tend to derive not from you being smarter or working hard but you're like i just have superior genetics like i can cast this magical ability because my line of forefathers like look at fucking um goku look at naruto look at like pretty much anyone my academia has that going on pretty no one talks about it but it it's most well, certainly there. I mean, it's, it's like, a weird, like, subtextual thing a lot of the time. Even, like, One Piece. I thought One Piece would be, like, kind of bucking that trend until you find out much later into the series that spoilers, spoilers, spoilers that I'm not going to get D. into. 
Exactly. Exactly. There, there's all sorts of nonsense that happens there. I'm not, I'm not going to get into it further, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and to be fair, like a lot of what we see, at least in entertainment through movies and on television, that's like several years, if not almost half a decade behind what's being printed, like in, in publishing. But so even, even in that we're seeing, say the latest star Wars movies, right? It's still genetic exceptionalism is what they're mm-hmm. dealing with. Mm-hmm. They're not really yeah. showing us anything new. Yeah. Palpatine blood. Mm-hmm. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> I yes. can hear him seething. <laughs> can't, Daniel has can't. muted himself. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, can't with that movie. I just can't do that. Can't go there. It'll be a tw- I mean, <laughs> he muted okay, himself. Even, he's going to scream. I mean, even, and, and granted, that kind of trope is seductive, right? Like Harry Potter is mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the modern fantasy of our time, right? UIA fantasy of our time. And it relies on that same trope, right? Sure. Uh, I mean, you're, you're the chosen one. And I mean, I think it's popular for a reason because I think there's an innate need for everyone in existence to feel special in some way. And because Mm -hmm. fantasy and uh, sci-fi is often wish fulfillment, that's where it really gets, you know, like uh, expressed a lot. I think, I think, um, Oh, just on your point, like, I think there was this one, um, I think it's Kurt Vonnegut. He had, he had written an alternative, um, jesus christ story where instead of god uh making christ of his own blood in this parable god chooses a random hobo to be christ mm-hmm. to be sacrificed for the sins of humanity and i'm like that's a more interesting story to me yeah that mm-hmm. you know i'm not necessarily a big fan of kurt vonnegut but i can always respect him as a writer you know um i have weird things about vonnegut i, I i've tried to get into his stuff i just never could mm. yeah looping back to like the chosen one kind of trope i think that's why um the earthsea books stood out to me so much and appealed to me so much because i feel like they could have easily gone in that direction of like Mm -hmm. um sparrowhawk is like this unstoppable magic user and like can do whatever he wants but like right away there are consequences to his actions and he fucks things up and he has Mm -hmm. to make amends and sacrifices and it's it's really interesting to kind of follow him through the books because it's not just a like one-sided like oh i'm a really powerful mage it's i'm a really powerful mage but i messed up here and i like screwed this up and i hurt these people and Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, i think that's one one aspect of writing and world building and even especially rpg is that like rarely gets explored is the consequences to your mm. motherfucking actions, you know, like, yeah, I feel like there there's, there's something, and this is actually uh, something that I would like to see more of uh, to kind of go back to the question is books that are set in fantastical settings that have nothing to do with war or like mm-hmm. a, a magical, like chosen one type narrative where it's like, this is the world picking up the pieces, you know, like where there's a lot of implications to otherwise world breaking events that are never written about. And it's about the smaller stories that happen within. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of opportunities that you could tell really beautiful, human, interesting, weird stories that happen within those types of settings. Yeah, I totally agreed. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have any other tropes that we're sick of, Chris? I, I have a trope, but I I don't think it's a modern trend one. It's just one that's very hard for people to seem to move away from. Uh, monolithic cultures in mm. anything sci-fi, where it's 
the person that you meet from this culture is literally every person from mm. that culture you will then meet from there on. There's, And if you meet anyone who goes against that, they are instantly the most outcasted uh heretic Op, yeah. yeah heretic mm-hmm. the exact opposite it's not like no that's just like the one thing that i really liked about uh well i liked many things about it but uh in the mandalorian how when he met other mandalorian people they were like oh he's one of those people he's like the really traditional type and yeah that was the mm-hmm. only thing that was touched upon it it yeah, wasn't I... like a, how dare you you never take off your helmet it was just like <laughs> oh all right Moving on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, com- completely agreed there. I think that there's also a trope within uh, sci-fi as well, where it's like, they're, what are they called? They're like monobiomes or something like that, where it's like, there's this the, is the jungle planet. planet. The right. Planet. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. That's always frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like, well, why is your world like that? Like, tell yeah. us about that, you know, like that type of thing. That's that's another trope that also can go fuck off and die. I agree. Yeah. And I feel like that also ties in with like the whole idea of, consequences or implications like you can't Mm. just have like oh here's a jungle planet but also like otherwise the culture is exactly like um humans on earth like it wouldn't develop like that you know there would be totally different technology totally different um ways of living cultures everything why do the ferengi not care more about water or see a jungle and swamp and everything as being a little bit more important how did they get to be hyper capitalist yeah, I mean, and I think this is a thing that I've been talking about literally since episode three, where if you're going to be doing different like fantasy or, or sci-fi races or species, depending on how you want to describe them, uh, make, make sure that you follow all the way through with the implications and don't make don't just make them humans. You know, like that's my biggest issue, my biggest point when it comes to that type of trope. Uh, but I I. I Promise Clark, I wouldn't go on this rant again. So, that <laughs> do we yeah, talk about it. economics? Is that what we're talking about right now? Or no, uh, no, we're we're oh. talking about um, like the the implications of like monobiome like planets uh-huh. and stuff like that. So, like this is ice planet, jungle planet, oh, yeah. desert planet, like dumb bullshit like that needs to yeah. fuck off. And this doesn't make sense. Yeah. I do. Yeah. One thing I'd like to see is um, science fiction. I mean, and this is being done, but I'm just saying I would like to see it more, especially in the big screen is science fiction that pays a lot of attention to its economic basis. So mm. like mm. if you have a utopia, like what was the path that achieved that? And what is their economic situation? Right. So like even something like Star Trek, they don't want to talk about that because they have an explanation, but it's just not what they're really interested in. But I would love to see like, okay, like what's the economic underpinnings of if you have a system where people travel faster than light, like how do things work like that? Or if they don't, like how do you move supplies back and forth? Like what are what's the economy like? I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot of weird stuff that comes out of when you start answering those questions. Well, yeah, like if you take a closer look to go back to what I was saying about uh, the Ferengi, they have replicators. So literally the only thing of value would be ideas. So why aren't mm-hmm. they like spear fronting technological advancement? Right. Yeah. So it's like, oh, when you have when you have no longer a need for worrying about scarcity, like well, what's the you know, what's the concern? No, mm-hmm. unless it's gold plant plated latinum <laughs> right that can't replicate that and this isn't to say like this stuff is being explored i think in at the forefront of like sci-fi like in writing it's just that we're not seeing that we don't get to see those things on the big screen until like five to ten years later which is the sucky part 
This actually ties into another one of our patron questions. We're, we're inadvertently answering this, which is <laughs> Seth asks us, what is your favorite oft overlooked bit of world building and who does it best in your opinion? Ooh. Oh yeah. I mean, I can go pretty quickly and easily. I think that um, the reason I like China Meville stuff as much as mm-hmm. I do is that it focuses on exactly what I was interested in. You know, I was talking about previously where it doesn't focus on the adventuring party. It focuses on regular people in fantastical settings. So one of the things that I really like in Meville's uh, Predator Street Station is there's a great scene where they explore like a slaughterhouse. And I think that aspect of it is really fascinating. And I love not just seeing, you know, the the slaughterhouse itself, but focusing on the working class people mm-hmm. and focusing on like, hey, these are these are how dangerous dissident ideas get put down. You know, like that's that's the really interesting thing. And also, if you haven't read Pretty to Street Station, dear God, I've been talking about this book for nearly 100 episodes. So good. So good. Uh, I, I agree that, or, or rather, I would suggest that China Meville does stuff like that really, really well. Not just in his boss log stuff, but his uh, more sci-fi uh, ventures as well. Yeah, totally. I was also thinking of him in that he um, has these characters who are just not like the typical fantasy warrior types. Like oh, in yeah. Purdue Street Station, one of them's the scientist academic kind of guy and one's an artist and there's a journalist. Mm-hmm. It's like not not what you typically see. And um, yeah. he also really, really does well with the idea of consequences that we were talking about oh, before, yeah. where um, something Morally that might... difficult choices as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we had a good conversation about, like, the ending of that book. And, like, Isaac's kind of a piece of shit. And I yeah. think that's another thing I appreciate about his writing is that he's not afraid to write unlikable characters as, mm-hmm. like, fairly major characters, you know? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Does anyone else want to talk about the oft overlooked aspects of world building? I was going to say the thing that often is overlooked is uh, how do people eat and mm-hmm. what do they do with their day to day lives? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, a lot of people seem to overlook uh, the industry and the, like, why was this town set up? Why here? Because often you'll just try and do what a lot of fantasy does where it's just like oh there's a waterfall here that's cool and then the town is built around that waterfall and then it's just like well why did they all go there's not like go a little bit further say that there's fish or something at least it's it's kind of like what daniel was saying where you want economic consequences or at least justifications for the world building decisions that we're talking about here yeah yeah just like the a sort of attention at least to like the mundane tasks that need to take place to build these things up and Mm -hmm. and all the things that sort of exist in cultures that don't involve heroic acts like artists and authors and um, musicians um i feel like they're they tend to often be overlooked in in like fantasy sci-fi settings hard agree one thing I wouldn't say it's necessarily overlooked, but it's not usually thought of as part of world building. Like we usually think of what are all the things we're going to put in this world, um, you know, when we're doing world building. But when you're actually doing the act of writing something using your world building, there's the craft involved, right? And so mm. to me, I think what's really important and what what makes a difference between say your average piece of speculative fiction and something that can be great and be in like an anthology 
is the language. And by that, I mean specifically like what, how do you unify all the elements you've come up with in your setting um, in, in your story through the language itself. And so, you know, there's your classic examples of writers who do that. Like William Gibson, for example, obviously is one who, you know, 40 years ago is the type of person who takes specific words and and starts to make them evocative based on how how he's chosen to name things and how mm-hmm. everything kind of adds up to the same economy of language um you know and i think if you if you can do that then you don't actually have to do as much world building on paper because the reader is going to start um imagining the things you're creating mm-hmm. based on how you've named them mm-hmm. um yes the culture series, I think, is one that does it a lot um, by giving you really interesting names for things in order to get you to start thinking about how the, what does that actually mean for the world without you having to actually spend hundreds of pages documenting, at least in your head for your own sake, what do those things mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or sometimes documenting them to the readers as like an info dump, which yes, which always just like yes. pulls me right out of the story. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't feel like reading in a textbook right now. I just want to yeah. follow these characters. Uh, to expand upon that with the language, I do love when you see in a book, a game, or anything, uh, the two different levels of language where you will have like the more educated words for things and then the more uh, common or street language of like, instead of people saying organic, they'll say ganic or something like that. Yeah, you're talking about like colloquial language, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it goes back to like the fundamental... Tolkien basis for all of this is like the the language is at the spine of this whole thing. Like the vast majority of his world building was based on language, and and whatever we say about Tolkien's actual writing, like the language is how he started building everything because he was a linguist. And I mean, and the reason why I focus on this is because my background, like academically, was in poetry first. Like that's what I mm. that's what my minor was, and I had a lot of workshops for that in my undergrad. So it's like I'm always thinking about well, what is what are the actual words in the page going to do right. aside from the plot? I, I think I've, I've actually been thinking about this aspect of world building a lot recently. And I've kind of come up with like a shorthand version or a shorthand name for it, which is the implication, right? Like what's the implication <laughs> of your words and your worlds and, and, and aspects that lead to the, the person who's engaged with the text asking a million more questions or on the inverse, perhaps inferring a million different details and bits of information, right? Like by, by adding small details and allowing the implication to happen, you know, it's a matter of, oh, well now I know this, this, and this about the world just based on one small detail. I think that that's really important. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to uh, Jacob who wants to know, what is usually left half-baked in a world that you really want to see more well-developed? I feel like that's kind of uh, been talked about a little bit, but we can, mm-hmm. we can go a little bit deeper into that if you want. I think we owe it. A lot of time religion. Ooh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's Even, not a bad idea. Like the one thing about fantasy, a lot of time when it's 100% that not only does your God exist, but so does the other guy. There's no, like, acceptance of the fact of your God does exist. My God's just better than your God. It Very rarely will it become, like, a philosophical debate of which, like, the reason you follow your God. It's just more of, nope, this is my God. 
Mm. Even though you have proof that other gods exist, which should allow you to question it or kind of nitpick which one you want to follow. Mm, yeah. For me, it's definitely um, magic. And I know that sounds weird considering like how overly done magic and, and how overly explained some magic systems are. But what I mean by this is the, again, the implication, you know, like when you have certain types of magic, you also, I feel like people think about cool magic systems and then stop to, th and don't often stop to think about um, the implication of what those systems actually mean in, in the greater sense of the word. Uh, I, I'm just going to take a generic, like, let's think about the Forgotten Realms and let's think about like a generic D&D &D fantasy setting where when you have access to a bunch of all of these spells or, or a bunch of all of these magical abilities, you, and you don't, and you still see like, farmers and serfdom and a lot of that same kind of power dynamic that we're used to in our world where you're not thinking about the idea that well necromancers can raise dead and use them as workers or you can give miners ant strength and suddenly you don't need nearly as many miners or you know like there's a level of societal disruption that happens when you introduce magic into a lot of these mm -hmm. worlds that just doesn't get explored. Like people are always trying to create the coolest magic system for the adventuring the party, for mm -hmm. the adventuring party, but not to think about how it would be used on a commercial or a, on, a, on a personal basis. Yeah, it's almost like they take a world without magic and then just like drop some magic on top, but don't actually change any of what's underneath. Yes. Yeah, and, I feel like that's yeah. probably one a, a big opportunity for sure. Yeah, like and, even thinking about healing spells um, in like role-playing games and fantasy settings, it's like if you can just heal somebody's broken limb, like why are all these other people suffering? Or if you can resurrect mm -hmm. people, like what, what implications would that have for a civilization? Oh, I mean, I think that if we were to extrapolate it in terms of a like societal sense, it would certainly mean that richer people essentially become immortal or at least have a greatly mm -hmm. expanded lifespan compared to the poor, which I would imagine would lead to some kind of a, a class divide much stronger than what we see in traditional fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You touched on the whole magic thing. Like uh, I kind of said, I don't get how often there are poor people and then people running around with, items that could fix entire yeah. nation's problems yeah, or, or it's like one adventurer has several decades worth of work for a day laborer on them at any time you know like mm -hmm. that mm. is i mean the more that i think about it especially the economics of like D D, it's weirdly like supremely classist in a lot of ways and yeah. like you're literally playing the 1% and it's like kind of gross in some ways, or it's like, I guess this is what inherent superpowers look like. And like, meanwhile, you could probably do a lot more good than fighting off a goblin or like a horde of goblins than like, Hey, I'm just going to sell my staff. And like, now I'm going to greatly improve this area as a result, you know? Yeah. It's like Jeff Bezos is like the level 20 wizard who isn't going to help anybody. <laughs> He's just about just to cast planar transition he <laughs> fucking flies to Mars. So yeah. Have you signed that he should not be allowed to return? 
I have not. I have not. No. Yeah. No. I guess it really depends on the the particular piece, right? So it's it's hard yes. for me to say what's what's half baked overall across mm-hmm. like what's. I mean, what does that mean? Like what's currently being published? What do we see in movies? I think like on a case by case basis, you might find like if if a story is interested in say um, I don't know like. Um, empire building right and they don't really have a political system expressed mm. in the story that would be half-baked right but if they have, they don't have i don't know um a, a heavy religious system explained and there's not really religion as a part of the story i could see that as being fine but it really depends on the story like what what whatever their main goal thematically is like hopefully they fleshed out the world building for that thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that's a very valid point. You know, like, I think that what we're looking at here is what allegory are you really seeking out in your fiction? You know, like, what do you want to look at? You know, oh, I want to see more, you know, like, I want to see more um, commentary on colonialism as it happens, you know, like that type of thing. Uh, I was I watched a really great video essay recently on um, War of the Worlds and the alien invasion as colonialism. And I was like, oh, I'm really dumb and never thought of alien invasions as an extension of colonialism before. And it was actually really intriguing to, you know, kind of think about it that way. And uh, we have another question from Jacob who wants to know, at what point is cereal considered a stew? Chris, you can start us off with this one. Okay. I'm going to ignore that and go for the food lovers compendium. It states (laughs) that cereal has to be a grain based product. Oh, okay. This so sounds right to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, cereal grains is a term. Yeah. So I, I was going to say you're probably sense. looking at cereal of the grain, not necessarily. Like, no, no. Uh, it's it says cereal, and it is named after I believe the ancient Roman god for agriculture, which means it has to be a. A cereal is it is something of a grain that is grown and processed that makes it cereal. This is going to be the next hour of the podcast, by the I, way. So if I you want to die upon this hill, God damn it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I, so Courtney, why don't you tell us when does cereal become a stew? Uh, I, I do not think that cereal is a super stew. I, okay. I think there's Daniel? a division. Thank you. Thank you, yep. Courtney. Yep. Um, I guess when you start to boil it. Like... Oh, interesting. See, so would my... like oatmeal be a stew then? Oh yeah, that's actually no. Oatmeal is just no cereal. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so my view on it is like you wouldn't if you somebody asked you like, "Hey, what'd you have for breakfast?" and you said, "I had a stew," they wouldn't be like, "Oh, you had a bowl of like whatever cereal." They would picture an actual like beef stew or something, because that's just not the the common meaning of the word and how it's used in in common parlance. When you say cereal. You mean oh. something so, like Cheerios. To, exactly. To yes. Courtney's point, a stew is specifically a dish of meat and vegetables that's cooked yeah. slowly. So, mm-hmm. right. So, so no, actually, it's not ever a stew. my answer to that question. When you, veg- when you add meat and vegetables, then it will be a stew. <laughs> right. Well, there's an argument to be made that the cereal itself is, in fact, a vegetable. You know, our mm. grains are basically vegetables, right? Mm, no. Fucking Chris is going to murder you. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, I I would say that when you have, um, I would say it becomes a stew as soon as you add meat to it. So the next time you're sitting down and you have some cinnamon toast crunch, 
and you like have some chopped up cubes of steak or something to it, guess what? You've got yourself Why? a steak. <laughs> okay, wait, wait. One other thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. <laughs> for the same reason. Quick if somebody time. If somebody asked you, what'd you have for lunch? And you said a sandwich, they wouldn't be like, oh, hot dog, clearly. Like, that's what you mean. Question. It's just not in the same. But then what is category. a hot dog? Question. Uh, what if someone said a hot dog sandwich? Mm. I've had those. It's when I don't yeah. have any hot dog buns. And you cut it like yeah. in half and that, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I just leave my hot dogs whole as I <laughs> eat them with my toast. <laughs> I don't know why. I just immediately pictured you swallowing hot dogs whole. <laughs> I mean, as long as it's not with ketchup. Yeah, Chris is one of those weird people who don't think that hot dogs and ketchup go together, which I is can't like just do it. Ketchup it, is great. Okay, on hot dogs. Chris is the type of person who is like, soup is not a cereal, or, or cereal is not a soup, but then it's like hot dogs and ketchups don't mix. Like, no, I respect. What? I respect. What? If you want to put ketchup on yours, don't put ketchup on mine. That is, Chris. What do you put ketchup on? Uh, fries. Mm. Mm. Okay, that's. that's I feel like that was a word association for a moment. I didn't like. There was no (laughs) cognizant thought there. It was just like fries. Gotcha, gotcha. Ooh, eggs. Even though I'm told they don't do that in the South. What? What? Scrambled ketchup ketchup and eggs. Scrambled eggs. Yeah, scrambled eggs. No. Yeah, Yeah, we do that all the time in the South. No, absolutely not. Hot sauce made on eggs. Hot sauce. Wait, wait. Chris, ketchup and eggs. Yeah. Chris, have you ever cut up hot dogs into scrambled eggs and had ketchup with it? No. Oh my <laughs> god, what is this? What is this podcast and what are you fucking talking about? Courtney? But I have had hot dogs cut up into my macaroni. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. All right. So we now we have uh, roughly fifteen minutes left. <laughs> Daniel, explain why you don't trust burritos. <laughs> <laughs> For the because next 15 minutes. they're completely sealed up, and you don't know what's inside of that until you open it up. It could be anything. It could be filled with rice. There could be, True. like, rubs in there, for all you know. Mm-hmm. You're just stupidly biting into it, you know? That's what you okay. get. But what happens if you either, A, make the burrito yourself, or, or B, watch them make the burrito? Um, making the burrito yourself is safer. No, it's Watching just... them make the burrito, you know, you have to trust what you can see. So, Daniel, let me ask you a question. <laughs> so, how do you feel about pies, Daniel? Like, um, specifically pies with a crust on them that you can't see until you cut into them. Well, when you eat a pie, do you take the entire circular pie and stuff it into your mouth? Absolutely. So, <laughs> when you eat a pie, normally you cut a slice open. And so, you're using a fork and knife and you're cutting it apart and seeing what's inside of it. So, why don't you just, if you're, if, if you're given a burrito... Why can't you cut into it just a little bit to see that it's okay and then, you know, like put it back? If I have to eat a burrito, in fact, what I do is cut it apart with a fork and knife. You're a monster. <laughs> You're an actual fucking monster, Daniel. What is wrong with you? But you see, it all makes logical sense. It doesn't. <laughs> my what? coworkers once plotted, um, my coworkers were fascinated because I, I don't like to touch food. Like it just, it's, I don't want to touch it with my hands. So they once plotted a chart because we were all, you know, they were mostly engineers and we were working at an advertising agency and they did this white, we had a whiteboard. So during lunch, 
they had me answer the question like would you touch this or would you not and they put it on a chart and it was the chart they determined had a spectrum from artificial to not artificial so the more artificial it was the more likely i was to be able to touch it that's fascinating that, and i wish is. there was a picture of it <laughs> I, I i might actually still have a photo of it <laughs> daniel i man this and so is... i felt justified that there was reason behind my <laughs> okay so question daniel <laughs> what happens if you have a burrito uh -huh. with tinfoil around it well, you uh, unwrap it and then you fork and knife it. No, no, God, no, no. I mean, like, would you be okay holding like a sandwich in tinfoil? No. Why? <laughs> it's too thin of a barrier. Because, <laughs> well, you mean because I, in terms of touch or in terms of what's inside of it? In in terms of touch. In terms of touch, that's fine because there's like a barrier around it. Yeah. Oh man. Oh, <laughs> more about sandwiches than world building. <laughs> Uh, I that's why do you think I devoted the last fifteen minutes to this question? Because it's like, man, we are we're going deep with the Daniel lore here. Because like, <laughs> I thought like cereal soup was like a hotly contested debate. No, Daniel's weird food shit is way weirder than cereal I just, being. A wait, soup. Daniel. I uh -huh. Um, what about pop tarts? Pop tarts. Yeah. Um. So those like they're they're fairly uniform in what they'll contain. Like okay. there's not surprises in a pop tart, you know. It's just basically goo. So I'm not really worried about that. And also they're like processed food, so they're pretty uniformly created. So okay. Do you trust the more it's processed. Yes. What if what about like a frozen burrito? Because those are processed. Oh no, Ooh. gross. Like what a frozen lollipops. Mm. Oh, those are fun. I like that. <laughs> I mean, they're solid. It's a solid thing. You know, it's like wait, wait. into it. So Capri here's a list Capri of things Daniel will never eat. Empanadas. Ravioli. Oh God, no. Da okay. Oh, God. Here's a list of things Daniel will never eat. <laughs> Empanadas. Yeah. Pastelitos. Ravioli. Nope. Uh wontons, Pierogi. Uh, nope. Pierogi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pierogi are so good, though. I mean, oh they're God. all pasta. I don't even like pasta, so there you go. You're insane. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, I, I can't. Oh, oh man. Okay. I mean, see, it, what's funny is the hangups people have with food. Like, if it were up to me and I didn't have to do any social eating with anyone, I would honestly only drink soy water. Honestly. <laughs> You're a fucking monster. <laughs> I would be healthier than everyone else. I would save so much money. Would you be healthier so than everybody else? Actually, yes. there were some there yes. were some links and studies that I saw where it's like mm. mastication actually helps brain development. So mm. you'd have to chew your soylent, Daniel. I don't know how well, well that would work for you. You would just question freeze of, it slightly. The question of the relevance <laughs> of those studies. Soylent but, ice cream. Yeah. The question of the relevance of the studies, but the soylent itself is has extremely perfect nutritional value. Hmm. Even okay. though they no longer advertise it as a full meal replacement, even though it was originally. I, I think because people I lost why. a lot of weight. <laughs> huh. Some would say a it's, dangerous amount of weight. It's, it's <laughs> weird, Daniel, that the thing is not working the way that it's advertised. Anyway, um, okay, we're going to conclude Daniel's hot take corner over here. <laughs> Actually, wait, one more question. I'm sorry. Wait, oh, boy. oh, boy. Do you just not eat, like, fried chicken? Like, bone-in fried chicken? That's oh, just not something not without eat. silverware. Oh, God. I'm not touching that. Gross. It's, like, super <laughs> greasy. <Ooh. laughs> 
Yeah. I can't, I, you know, I also can't, like, I don't mind people touching their food, but like when people are like handling ribs or fried chicken, Mm. oh, I just, it's revolting. I won't say anything, but it's revolting to me. So, so you came to my graduation party, which Mm -hmm. was literally hot wings galore. Yep. And I used a plastic fork and knife whole time. I know you did, but like you sat How there in abject that? horror the yes. entire time. Silent abject horror. <laughs> Thus concludes Daniel's hot take corner. Uh, if you want to find out more weird <laughs> shit about Daniel, you can always email us over at worldbuilderthus at gmail.com. Realistically, you're probably coming to us for the world building stuff. That's fine too. You can still send that email over there. Uh, alternatively, if you want to find us on Twitter, you can tweet us over at Let's World Build, follow us and stuff like that. Uh, you can also join our Discord and ask Daniel directly, what the fuck is wrong with him? <laughs> Link for that in the description. And of course, you can always be incredibly generous and give us money over on Patreon. Link for that also in the description. So... That's been our episode. I'm going to go ahead and give everyone a final say before we send it off. So if you want to say anything now, please do. I apologize for my comments earlier. I hope those were edited out. <laughs> they are. You can you can ignore that. <laughs> Thank you. I stand uh, by my food choices. <laughs> I will right. fight you if you say cereal is a soup. I will find you. I agree just, with you. Yes. Uh, it is not. I will meet you by the flagpole. <laughs> I, frankly, I think that Daniel's takes on food are far more distressing and um, <laughs> upsetting than cereal being soup. I'm willing to, uh, 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 you know, go there. Uh, but this is regarding the podcast. So, from me personally, I just want to thank each and every one of our listeners, and especially our patrons, for supporting us. Uh, not just emotionally, spiritually, but also financially. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing to scream into the void. It's another thing to hear a voice back. So thank you for all of your feedback. Thank you for all of your prompts. Uh, we've gotten so many really awesome settings and ideas, and we've been able to explore all sorts of different cool, interesting, fun stuff as a result. So uh, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much all of you for listening to us um and for being part of this podcast in the community i can't believe we made it to 100 episodes i'm really impressed that we even made it past 10 like i said um but anyway remember that we love you very much thank you so much for listening and we're going to get through this together until next week.